Today we want to study one of the most critical uh, councils in all the history of the church, the First Church Council. Now you know that in the history of the church they've had what is called ecumenical council. The word ecumenical means church-wide or worldwide. Here's the first church council uh, in the history of the church, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 35. Now, uh, Acts, the book of Acts is divided in three major sections, Acts 1 to 7, 8 to 12, and 13 to 27. When we come to Acts 13 to 27, we have two major divisions. First of all, the missionary journeys of Paul. That's Acts 13, 1 to Acts 21, verse 16. Second, the imprisonments of Paul, Acts 21, 17 to Acts 28, 31. First, in Jerusalem second in Caesarea, and third in Rome. Now, when we come to that first section, that is the imprisonment of Paul, there are four major items, four major events. Number one, the first missionary journey, Acts 12 and 13. And you have all that down in last week's outline. Number one, the first missionary journey, Acts 12, uh, Acts uh, 13 and 14. Number two, the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, verses 1 to 35. Number three, the second missionary journey, Acts 15, verse 36, to Acts 18, 23, first half of 18, 23. And then point for the third missionary uh, journey, Acts 18, 23b, to Acts 21, 16. And uh, when we get to Acts 21, 16, we're through with the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Now, we are still getting just a wee bit of ring in that. Is that right? Just a wee bit of ring in that. All right, now today, therefore, we want to take up the Jerusalem Council. And this is a very critically important um, uh, council. And it's important for two reasons. Matter of fact, it's important for several reasons, but there are two reasons for which it's especially important. Number one, first reason it's important is that by this council, a split in the church was avoided. We would have today a Gentile church and a Jewish church uh, in Jerusalem and in Memphis had not this council found a solution to the problem. So it avoided a potentially dangerous split in the early church. Now, they had that in the Old Testament, didn't they? They had the Jews, and then they had another group. What were they called? The Samaritans. Samaritans had their own temple, had their own Old Testament Pentateuch, had their own religious forms and ceremonies. You had two groups, the, the, the Jews and the Samaritans. Well, here was the potential for that same thing in the early church. And this council uh, went a long way toward avoiding that problem. Now, it never really satisfied the strong, Pharisaic Jewish Christians. And they troubled Paul all the rest of his life. But it did avoid a major split in the church. The second reason it's important is because this council reconfirmed by the voice of all the church the great doctrinal, uh, cardinal 
doctrinal truth of our faith, and that is salvation by grace through faith plus nothing. As old Dr. Pettengill used to say, salvation by faith, by grace, through faith, plus nothing. The question that all men have to face, the question that really Martin Luther faced was this. Martin Luther faced the question, and so did Cain and Abel. Martin Luther faced the question, how is a man justified before God? Is he justified before God by faith plus the sacrament? Or is he justified by God through faith alone? Martin Luther's great uh, uh, close memory verse was Romans chapter 117. The just shall live by faith. Quote from the Old Testament, quoted three times in the New Testament. Now, that, that, that war was fought out in the 16th century. It was fought out in the first century, the Jerusalem Council, and it still goes on today. And you walk downtown and ask the average man, the average man, and he might well be a church member, how are you saved? You planning to go to heaven? Oh, yeah. You want to go to heaven? Oh, yeah. How are you planning to go to heaven? Well, I trusted Jesus, and I'm trying to live a good Christian life. That's the same heresy as they face here. You're not going to heaven by trusting Jesus and trying to live a good life. That's like the old illustration that you ask a man, how did he get across the river? He said, I rode across. You rode, yes. I had two oars, and I pulled on both of those oars, and I got to heaven. So he says, uh, and the man who used the illustration, we're saved by faith, that's one oar, and by works, that's the second oar. And by faith, works, I'm rowing across the river of life, and I'll get to heaven. That, of course, is a terrible and the heretical illustration. We're not saved by faith plus works. We're saved by faith alone in Christ. We say, doesn't James say, you're justified by works? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. But James is talking about uh, man's salvation in, in view of other men. And for a matter of fact, the key to it is that word S-H-O-W. James says, show me your faith without your work, and I will show you, show you my faith by my work. James is talking about demonstrated faith. And when Paul, you know, uh, uses the illustration of Abraham about justification by faith, Paul uses an illustration in Genesis 15, in which the Bible says, Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God, the Hebrew word is the word amen, Abraham amen God, believed God, and it was counted him for righteousness. When James, in the book of James, in James chapter 2, uses an illustration, he uses an illustration from Abraham's life that takes place 20 years later, found in Genesis 22, where God says to Abraham, take your son up, offer him on the sacrifice, and Abraham did so, and then um, James says, you see, was he not our father Abraham, justified by faith? What James meant was that Abraham demonstrated the reality of his justification by that act of his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. But Abraham had been justified 20, 25 years before that, however old uh, Isaac was at the time of that event of Genesis 22. So when Abraham, when Paul writes about Abraham, 
He uses Genesis 15. That was the hour of Abraham's justification. When James speaks of Abraham being justified by faith, he used the illustration of Genesis 22, which took place at least 20 years later, where Abraham demonstrated in life the reality of his justification. So, Paul was saying, God can look at our heart. He sees what's there. Therefore, we are justified by faith alone without the works of the law. Now, I heard a preacher over the radio a while back. He's right here in Memphis. He has a church out on Getwell, which believes that you're, bat you're saved by baptism. And he says the word A-L-O-N-E is not used. What says we're justified by faith alone? No, it's not. But what is used is something comparable to it. It's like this. Uh, in Romans 3.23, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the works of the law. Without the works of the law equals virtually alone. And when Paul said, was asked the question, sirs, what we must do to be saved, Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized and thou shalt be saved. No, when he was asked the question, he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now, if it were essential to be baptized, then Paul told an untruth. When he said, only believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now, that was the issue at the Jerusalem Council. It was a basic one. How are men to be saved? Are they to be saved by faith, or are they to be saved by faith plus circumcision? And that council settled it. Now, let's take our Bibles and read the first three verses of, of uh, Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, verses 1 to 3. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 3. We are going to have three things in this chapter. You don't have the outline for this chapter. You have the outline on the second missionary conference. Now, please bring that outline next week, because I'm not going to run it off again. So bring that outline next week. But don't spend 10 minutes now, the next 10 minutes, looking at that outline and saying, I wonder where he is. Because I'm not, I am not is any place in that outline. I've taken up something that lies between what we had last week and what's on that outline, and that's the Jerusalem Council. All right? Acts chapter 15. Certain men which came down from Judea. Now, as a matter of fact, they went north. They came down from Jerusalem all the way north to Antioch. But since it was, Jerusalem was 2,500 feet above sea level, and Antioch was almost at sea level. They said they came down. Certain men came down from Judea, which taught the brethren and said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be what? Saved. You've got to be circumcised to be saved. Well, is it enough to believe on Christ? No. You also, you Gentiles, you also got to be circumcised in order to be saved. One therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with these men in Antioch. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of the men, leaders of the church at Antioch, should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders 
about this question. How is the man saved? Being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and that caused, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. Now, here's the occasion. The occasion was made necessary. This council at Jerusalem was made necessary by the arrival in Antioch of certain Jewish teachers from the south, from Jerusalem and Judea, who taught the brethren that unless Gentiles be circumcised, they could not be saved. Now, I suppose you all know that circumcision in those days was not a matter of, uh, of health. It was a matter of health. It wasn't something that was done for hygienic purposes. Circumcision was the seal of the covenant. It was the one thing above all else that marked the Jews, circumcision. And if a Gentile wanted to be a full proselyte to Judaism, he had to be circumcised. That's why most Gentile, Gentile God-fearers like Cornelius, who were attracted by the monotheism and the high morality of Judaism, as over against the paganism of the Roman religion, would only become halfway proselytes to Judaism. Most of them, probably, probably 90, 95% of them, were not full proselytes, they were only halfway proselytes. Now there were thousands and thousands of these Gentile God-fearers. Matter of fact, they were really the people that Paul wanted to contact when he went into pagan cities like Philippi and, and Antioch, Philippi, Corinth, Ephesus, Philipp, uh, Thessalonica, and so on down the line. He went to the synagogue, he preached, and in the synagogue there were 75% Jews, but there are 25% probably of these God-fearers, they were called. Gentiles who embraced Judaism, but were not full proselytes because they refused to be circumcised. Circumcision was the seal of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Circumcision. Not the seal of the covenant which we have, but circumcision was the seal of the covenant. And it was the mark of the Jew. If a Jew wanted to deny that he was Jew, he tried to reverse that physical operation. And... Uh, if a Gentile became a full proselyte, he had to become circumcised. Now, these men, from down in Jerusalem, probably Christians, came down to Antioch, came north to Antioch, and began to teach the brethren the church, and naturally looked up to because they were from the great mother church, Jerusalem. They began to teach in the church, these Gentiles must be circumcised if they really want to be saved. Now, that question was heightened by what happened on the first missionary journey. Well, the Samaritans, Acts chapter 8, had been saved, but that raised no problem. They were half-breed Jews anyway. The Ethiopian eunuch had been saved, but he was a halfway proselyte anyway. Cornelius had been saved, but that was just one. And uh, he, uh, he was also a God-fearer, a halfway proselyte. But now in the first missionary journey, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pagan Gentiles with no contact with Judaism, no understanding of circumcision whatsoever, 
had been converted. And these Jewish leaders from down in Jerusalem came up and said, these Gentiles who have been saved, have been saved out of their pagan legalism and their pagan religion, now must also be circumcised if they want to be saved. And of course, Paul saw that that damaged, that struck at the heart of the gospel. Matter of fact, Paul dealt with that in two epistles, Romans and Galatians. Paul wrote one epistle, Galatians, to deal with that problem. In Romans, he dealt with the problem from the issue of salvation. In, Roman, in Galatians, the issue of sanctification. The Gentile is not under the Mosaic law, either for salvation or for sanctification. He's under the law of the discipline of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is much higher than the Mosaic law. Mosaic law said, don't commit adultery. The law of Jesus said, don't even look at a woman. Just think about it. And the discipline of the law of Jesus Christ is much higher, and all the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament except one. And that's why we meet on Sunday and not on Saturday. And Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. That's like saying a square circle. The Sabbath is the seventh day. Now, if you were a Seventh-day Adventist or a Seventh-day Baptist and meet on Saturday, then you can call it the Christian Sabbath. But Sabbath means Saturday. It's seven, seven, Sabbath. Shabbat, seven. And the Christian Sabbath, the Sabbath is Saturday. We meet to honor the Lord in his resurrection and the birthday of the church. And so here were these large number of Gentiles being saved. And these Jewish leaders said, unless they're circumcised, they, they cannot really be saved. Now, let's be clear on the issue. This was not the possibility of Gentile salvation. That's already settled. That was settled in the Old Testament. The issue was the grounds on which or the means by which Gentiles are saved. Are they saved by faith alone in Christ? Or are they saved by faith plus works? How are men saved? And Paul recognized the gravity of the matter, recognized that it destroyed the heart of the gospel, and it would destroy fellowship between Jew and Gentile, so therefore, the church decided to send, the Antioch church decided to send a delegation down Jerusalem to sell it. Now, that's good, isn't it? You know what a lot of churches have done? They would have written the Jerusalem church off and said, we're going to form a new group, divide from you, without trying to settle a problem. But they didn't. Paul was jealous for the truth, the doctrinal truth of the Bible. Paul was jealous for the doctrinal truth of the Bible. Paul was also jealous for the unity of the body of Christ, the church. He was jealous for both of them. Paul wanted to see that this thing would be solved and this disunity healed. So the church sent down Paul and Barnabas and others, and verse 3 tells us that on the way down, they stopped at Phoenicia and also at Samaria, declaring what God had done. Now we come to the second thing in the chapter, and that's the deliberations of the council. The first thing... The occasion for the council, verses 1, 2, and 3. The second thing is the deliberations of the council. Chapter 15, verses 4 to 29. The deliberation of the council. 
Now the council's going to meet. Now we're down in Jerusalem. The council or the conference is going to meet, and they are going to deliberate this question. How are Gentiles saved? Are they saved by faith alone, or are they saved by faith plus circumcision? Now there are going to be three meetings. Three meetings. The first one is a public reception in verses 4 and 5. The third one is a public conference that begins with verse 6. Now, what do you see between verse 5 and verse 6? What do you have there? About an eighth of an inch of space. Is that right? Is that what you got? I'll tell you what else goes there. What else goes there is Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 goes between verse 5 and verse 6. And we'll see that in just a minute. So we have three meetings here, two of them preliminary. We have a public reception. Secondly, from Galatians 2, we've got a private meeting. And then third, we have the public conference. <clears throat> all right, let's look at those three things. First of all, the, the public reception. They got down there, and the leaders received them and met with them uh, prior to the conference proper. Chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Let's read it. When they were come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church, by the apostles and elders in that church, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But, but, they rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees who believed. Now these were believing Jews, but they were legalists. They rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, saying that it was necessary to circumcise Gentiles and it was necessary to put Gentiles under the what? Law of Moses. To do both of them. Necessary to circumcise Gentiles and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And he's thinking here especially about salvation. To do both things. Now that's the public reception. And by the way, the issue is joy. How are Gentiles saved? Now keep your finger there. Go over to Galatians chapter 2 quickly. After that public reception, Paul meets with the leaders of the church for a private conference to get the matter straightened out between them. If the leaders are agreed on this thing and they settle this problem, it's going to be a lot easier to settle a problem in public conference. So they meet together <clears throat> in this private conference to discuss this thing and to, uh, uh, to see... Uh, to express their confidence in one another and agree on the action that ought to be taken. Galatians chapter 2. Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by how? Revelation. One of my revelations. Now, Acts 15 says they were sent by the church. Galatians 2, 2 says they went up by revelation. Because of that, some men believe that Galatians 2 is the same as the famine visit in Galatians chapter 11. Now, there are many Bible believers that believe that. They believe that Galatians 2 goes with Acts chapter 11, the famine visit of Paul and Barnabas. The old traditional view is that Galatians 2 takes place at the same time as Acts 15. Now, that's my view. Now, if that's so... Paul went up there for two reasons, and there's no contradiction. 
First of all, he went up there because God revealed it to him that he ought to go up there. He was guided there by God. But secondly, the church asked him to go up there. And there's no contradiction in those two things. Now, what we have here in Galatians chapter 2 is the private meeting that takes place between Paul and the leaders. Verse, verse 2. So I went by revelation uh, and communicated unto them, them, them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to them that were of reputation, the five or six leaders of the Jerusalem church. Verse, uh, and, and he says, uh, verses four and five, 3, 4, and 5, that these legalists, Jewish legalists, tried to get me to circumcise Titus. I absolutely would not circumcise. I gave place, verse 5, by subjection, no, not for one hour. I would not circumcise Titus, being a full-blooded Gentile. But those who seemed to be somewhat, whatever they were, talking about Peter and John, the leaders of the church, for they seemed to be somewhat in conference, added nothing to me. Contrary-wise, when they thought the gospel of uncircumcision was committed to me, and the gospel to the Jews of circumcision was committed unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship and circumcision, the same was mighty me toward the Gentiles. When James, Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, received the grace that was given unto me, the grace to go to the Gentiles, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go to pagans and they would go to Jews, circumcision. Only they said, we want you to remember the poor, the same which I was also prepared and glad to do. So on down the line. See, well, now that's the private conference. Going back to Acts chapter 15, that takes place between verse 5 and verse 6 in Acts 15. That's the private conference of Paul with the leaders of the Jerusalem church to make sure on their part <clears throat> and also on Paul's part that they preach exactly the same gospel that was, they did. There's no problem. And then also decide on the course of action. Now we come third, therefore, to the public conference. And that's verses 6 to 29, the public conference. The public conference. Now who's present? Well, let's look at verse 6. Let's see who's present. Well, there's first of all the apostles. The remaining apostles, the remaining apostles are present. One of them, of course, had already been beheaded, hadn't he? In Acts chapter 12. James wasn't here, obviously. He was in the grave. So he wasn't here. But the other apostles in the city were there. Second, the elders of the Jerusalem church were there. Paul and Barnabas were there. And down in verse 12, who else was there? multitude that is the membership of the church this church was handled in a democratic fashion everybody participated in this decision so there was present the apostles the elders paul and barnabas and the multitude now there are going to be two things here first of all three speeches verses 7 through 18 and then the decision, verses 19 to 29. Two things. In this third public conference, two things. First of all, three speeches. Secondly, verses 7 to 18. Secondly, the decision, verses 19 to 29. Now, wouldn't it be nice if every church conference could be settled amicably 
by three short speeches each. You can read these three short speeches in about five minutes, really. Now, no doubt that what we have here is simply tracings of the speeches. They were probably longer than that, but they weren't too long. Three short speeches, a recommendation by James, and the whole multitude, the whole church, made an immediate decision. They adopted that recommendation of James, and they asked the brethren from Jerusalem to go back with Paul and Barnabas for representation, and they wrote a letter uh, declaring the freedom of the Gentile from the Mosaic law, called by Lindsay the Magna Carta of Gentile Christianity, that letter which they wrote. Now we got three speeches. Let's look at the first one. First one's a speech of Peter, verses 7 to 11. When there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth uh, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. God which knows their hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit. Now, how did Peter know they got the Holy Spirit? How? They spoke in tongues. You, you were here, weren't you? We studied Acts 10. They received the Holy Spirit. How did Peter know? They spoke in foreign languages supernaturally. That's how they knew. So God bare them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us Jews and them Gentiles, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, Peter's going to give two arguments. The first one is an argument from facts. What Peter is saying, gentlemen, we're arguing what God should do. What is a matter of the fact? The argument is, what did God do? What did God do? Peter said, I preached to a Gentile, Cornelius. I preached to a Gentile, Cornelius. Cornelius believed in Christ. He was not circumcised. But when he believed in Christ, he was saved. How do you know, Peter? Because he did what? Spoke in tongues. And that speaking in tongues in Acts 7, 10 showed me that Cornelius had received the Holy Spirit, and if he'd received the Holy Spirit, he was saved. God already answered it. And I said to the man in Acts 11, said Peter, I already received them without circumcision. If God has received them without circumcision, Cornelius, then we ought to receive them without circumcision. Second argument is the argument from experience, verse 10. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, Gentile disciples, which neither our Jewish fathers nor we were able to bear? What is that yoke? What is it? The Mosaic law. We were not able to bear it. We could not keep it in order to be saved. Now, we couldn't keep it in order to be saved. Why put that Mosaic law on these Gentiles? The argument from experience. We couldn't keep it. Why put it on? We well, say, did they ask that? Yes. Look at verse 5. There rose up certain the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was necessary to circumcise them and to command these Gentiles to do what? That's the yoke. Now, we couldn't keep it. We couldn't bear that yoke. Don't put the yoke of the Mosaic law, said, said Peter. 
upon the neck of the Gentiles. We were not able to be saved by keeping it. They cannot also. Well, that was the first speech. And it was a very powerful speech because the church honored Peter. Peter was the first pope, but he was honored, obviously, one of the twelve. And so they listened carefully to Peter. Now they got up a second. See, they got three people here that represent, if you look here, three different groups. Peter represented, well, who? Apostles. Paul represented this new movement to Gentiles. He represented the new apostles, so to speak. He represented the new way. He represented the gospel to the Gentiles. And then James represented the leadership of the Jerusalem church. So the three men represented the three groups there. The apostles, the, uh, the Antioch church with Gentiles, and the Jerusalem church was represented by James. Well represented in those three speeches. And they all said the same thing. All right, the second speech, the speech of Paul and Barnabas. Verse 12, second speech. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul. And Paul and Barnabas declared what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. Now that's simply the argument from authentication. We broke it down in a syllogism. It would simply be this. God called us to the Gentile ministry, to preach to the Gentiles salvation. Second, God authenticated our ministry by miracles. We got to Lystra, we, hit, we, we performed a miracle. We got to the Isle of Cyprus, a man was suddenly made blind. A reverse miracle. When we got to another city, uh, Acts 14, 3, God enabled us to perform many miracles. What were the miracles? They were their ambassador's credentials. Just as the ambassador to the court of St. James, whoever it might be, has credentials from President Reagan. So miracles were the ambassador from heaven's credentials. They were God's credentials that he gave to his apostles and prophets in the first century. Now, nobody has that Exxon card credential today. See, Those credentials were removed after the New Testament was written. The only credential that we have today it's the transformed life. The credential of the transformed life, outwardly and inwardly, the uh, testimony of the Word of God. The testimony of the Bible is completed in the New Testament itself. But before it was completed, God gave to the apostles, prophets, those authenticating credentials. And Peter, Paul saying, God authenticated our, our ministry by supernatural miracles. Now, if God did not approve, you listening? We preach a man could be saved by faith alone. You Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. You be saved by faith alone. Secondly, God authenticated it by saving hundreds of Gentiles and by enabling us to perform miracles. Now, if God did not approve of our message, he would not have given to us the authenticating miracles. He would have called us ambassadors back home to Washington. Wouldn't have given us the authenticating miracles. Now, that was a powerful argument. 
and they spoke only briefly and sat down. Now stands up the man who is the most honored man in the church. That's James. Now you know who this James is. This James is not the brother to John. We speak of James and John, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. That's not this John, James. That James was beheaded in Acts chapter 12. <clears throat> this James is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. He becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. He writes the epistle to the James, and later on he's known as Old Camel Knee because he spent so much time in prayer on his knees. Now James gets up and speaks. Let's read it. James, Acts chapter 15, begin at verse 13. And after they held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, that is Peter, hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. <clears throat> and to this agree the words of the prophets. They are in perfect agreement. As it's written, after this, I will return. After this, after the calling out of the Gentiles, I will return. Now, <clears throat> what's the inference? I will return. What is the inference to that? No, well, no. Well, that's right, after that. But if he returns, it infers that he's been here once. Once already. He's been here once. He's going to return. I will return. And I'll build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I'll build again the ruins thereof. That the residue of men, Jewish, that Israel might seek after the Lord. And all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things, known unto God, all his works in the beginning of the world. Now, James was addressing those Jews. Now, this is a, somewhat of a difficult point, so you'll have to listen carefully, especially since I want to get to it rather, to it rather quickly. <clears throat> James was addressing a group that was comprised virtually of Jews. In fact, they were all Jews. They had in their minds the same question that the apostles had in Acts chapter 1. Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. What they had was they observed that great multitudes of Gentiles were coming into the church. They thought, why, if this continues, the Gentiles will overwhelm, overwhelm the membership of the church, and the church will probably be Gentilic. For the last 2,000 years, it's been Israel separated from Gentiles. Now that we're gathered in the church, won't be long before the Gentiles are the majority party. If that happens, what is going to happen to all the promises that God gave to Abraham, to Isaac, <clears throat> to Jacob, to David, to Israel? The promise of a land forever, Genesis 17, 7 and 8. The promise of a seed forever. The promise of a land forever. He even gave the borders of it in Genesis 15. And he reconfirmed it to Isaac and to Jacob and to David in 2 Samuel 7 and to the prophets. What about those covenant promises of the land and of the seed and of a king and of a throne? What about all those? How does that fit in? James says it fits in perfectly. God has two programs. First, verse 14, what is his first program? What are the first two words in your Bible in verse 15? What are they? What are they in verse 15? First two words. 
What are they? In Acts chapter 15 now, uh, verse 60. What are they? Uh, after this, uh, after this. I want to see if you awake. <laughs> what are the first two words? They're the key words. After this. After what? Go back to verse 14. What is verse 14? What is God doing in verse 14? Calling out a people for his sake. That is what God is doing in the saints. That's the church. God is calling out a Jew from Jew and Gentile, a people for his saints. God is doing that. When that task is completed, when that is completed, then the next thing is going to take place. That begins at verse 16. After this, Jesus said, after that's completed, then what? It will happen. Christ will return, and what will he do? Build again the tabernacle of David. That is restore the Davidic kingdom. Now we've got, therefore, a plan. Here's God's plan. One of the clearest in all the Bible. Step number one, the first step in the plan is, it's inferred, but it's there. When you say, I will return, that means he's been here one time already. So, first one, Christ, Christ came and is gone. That's step number one, God's plan. Here's God's plan. Christ came. That's inferred by the word return. If you return, that indicates you've been there already. So Christ came, he's gone back to heaven. Step number one in God's plan. What's step number two in God's plan in verse 14? God is doing what? He is calling out a people for his name. That's this present age. That's this present age. After that's all over, after this, James puts that in by, by direction of the Holy Spirit. After this, after God has called out a people, after the church is completed, then step number three, what's going to happen? Christ is going to, will return here to this earth. How did he come the first time? Visibly, bodily to this earth. He's going to come visibly and bodily. And what's step number four? Christ will do what? will rebuild that tabernacle of David, the kingdom of David. He's going to reestablish the kingdom of David in the land of Palestine. Going to reestablish the kingdom of David in the land of Palestine. That's the millennial kingdom. And what's the purpose of establishing that millennial kingdom given to us in a, about verse 17? That the, that's the Jews that the Jews can be saved, the residue of the men may seek after me, and what else? What else does it say there? Verse, that the residue of men may seek after me, and what other group? And the Gentiles, the residue of men speaks of the Jews. The Gentiles speak of the Gentiles. Both Jews and Gentiles will be saved in the millennium. Matter of fact, when the millennium begins, nobody will go into a not saved. So that's God's program. Four steps. What is God's program? Number one, Christ came and he's gone back to heaven. What's the second step? God is calling out a people for his name. Then 
after that has been finished after this. After this. Step number three, I will return. Jesus Christ will return, and Jesus Christ will rebuild. Now, there's some men who say that step four is the same as step two, and that God is calling out the people for his name is the same as Christ rebuilding the tabernacle of David. Or to say it in other terms, they believe that the church is spiritual Israel. It is not. And it's never ever called that in the New Testament. Maybe call that in our hymns, but never called spiritual Israel in the New Testament. Why? Because it's not. God has one program for Israel, one program for the church. God in this age has a program for the church. What is that? To call out a people for his name, the church. When that is finished, after this, after this, after this, well, that's finished, I will do what? And will build again the tabernacle of David, the tabernacle of David, that kingdom. I'll build that house of David which has fallen into ruin and which is today. I'll rebuild it. When I rebuild it, I'll build it so that all the residue of men, Jews and Gentiles, may seek after me. That's the millennial kingdom. So I'm going to chart it. I chart it this way. That's the first step. Christ has come, and he's gone. Second step, right now, God is calling out a people for his name. When that's finished, and he takes them home to heaven, then the third step. What is that third step? I will do what? Return. And then the fourth step, the 1,000-year reign of Christ, I will rebuild. My friend, I ask you, when is Jesus going to rebuild the tabernacle of David so that all men may seek after him? Where? After he does what? Number three, he can't do it, won't do it, until after he returns. Now, that's not a bell to quit. That's we, our phones ring loud at Mid-South Bible College. <laughs> See, so don't worry about that. All right, now that's Peter's speech. Three speeches. They were good speeches. They did the job. Now let's look at the decision of the council. Begin at verse, verse 19, the decision, the council. Acts chapter 15, verses 19 to 29. Here's the decision of the council. First, the recommendation of James, 19 to 21. And second, the, uh, the action of the, of the church. Here's the decision. Wherefore, my brethren, my sentence is this, that we don't trouble those which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. How would you trouble them? By saying that the Gentile had to be circumcised in order to be saved and to put on the Gentile the yoke of the, the law. Don't trouble them. Don't require them to be circumcised to be saved. Don't put on the yoke of the law. That's it. Don't trouble That's the key to that chapter. Verse 19. That's the key. My sentence, and they adopted that, is don't trouble the Gentiles by adding something to their salvation like that. But as far as practice, since there are many Jews that are offended by something, let's advise the Gentiles that they avoid these things so as not to offend the Jews. So we write unto them that they abstain from pollution. That's 
meat offered to idols. You remember Paul dealt with that in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. Could Paul eat meat offered to idols? Could he? Yes. But not, he said, I won't do it, when it offends some weak brethren. That's what he's talking about. They're saying from meat offered to idols, from fornication, which they ought to anyway, from things strangled in which there's the blood, and from the blood. For Moses of old time has in every city them that preach him. Uh, Moses has from old time and still does those who put the yoke of the law on Gentile believers. He's got many of them right in Memphis that seek to put the yoke of the Mosaic law on Gentile believers. So, verse 22, the decision. So it pleased the apostles, the elders of the whole church. They, first of all, have proved that recommendation. Secondly, they decide to send men back with Barnabas and Paul back to Antioch. And they sent two of them, Judas, named, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas who goes with Paul in the second missionary journey. They wrote the letters by them after this manner. Here's the letter. In this letter, Paul carries with them on a second missionary journey. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentile, Gentile believers in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Here is our decision. For as much as we've heard that certain went out from us, from our church in Jerusalem, and they've troubled you with words, subverting your soul, saying, you've got to be circumcised and to keep the law in order to be saved, to whom we gave no such commandment. See, they came down hard on the side of Paul, didn't they? And hard against these Judaizers. Seemed good unto us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent, therefore, Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same thing by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us <clears throat> to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Now, they're necessary not for salvation, but for fellowship between Jew and Gentile. Not necessary for salvation. We seem to uh, lay upon you Gentiles these things as productive of fellowship between Jew and Gentile. What are those things? Verse 29. They abstained <coughs> meat sovereign idols. <coughs> you see, that explains what he meant by down in verse uh, 20. Pollutions of idols is meat offered idols. And from blood, from things strangled, from fornication. From which if you keep yourselves, you shall do well. Fare you well. And then we have the conclusion. The men from Antioch went back home. Problem was resolved. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch. When they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle which the church had sent. When the believers at Antioch, especially Gentiles, read it, they rejoiced. They rejoiced for the consolation. Why? Salvation by faith alone, no circumcision. Judas and Silas, the prophets, also themselves exhorted the brethren with many words to confirm them. And after they had tarried their space, they were let go in peace from the brethren under the apostles, Notwithstanding, please Silas to stay there still. Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And some days after Paul said to Barnabas, let us go again, visit our brethren in every city. And that begins the second missionary journey. And we'll study that next week. <coughs> now here's the Jerusalem Council. 
That's what can we say by way of conclusion? <clears throat> say it very quickly. What is the value of this Jerusalem Council? Well, the first value is this, that a potentially dangerous division was avoided. Potentially dangerous division could be avoided. You know, divisions in churches are usually over one of two things, either over doctrine or over personalities. In my experience, it run about 25% doctrine and run about 75% personalities. Somebody's ego gets bruised. Two people have leadership capacities, leadership authority, neither one wants to give it up, as did Barnabas so graciously. Well, here was a true doctrinal issue. And instead of simply saying, well, we're going to separate and start a new group, Paul and Barnabas and the church in Antioch said, let's go down and see if we can't resolve this. Paul was jealous for the unity of the body of Christ. Why do you think he was jealous? Because Jesus had prayed for it. Jesus prayed in John 17 that they all might be one. He prayed for that again and again, the unity of the body of Christ. Paul was jealous for it. And this conference down there was handled properly, was handled democratically. They were guided by the authority of God's word and by the Holy Spirit, and they reached a decision which the church at Jerusalem was happy about and the church at Antioch was about, and they avoided, right at the beginning of the church's history, a potentially dangerous division in the church. Second thing, they confirmed and affirmed a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith, salvation by faith alone. As old Dr. Pettengill used to say, we're saved by grace through faith plus nothing. Dr. Ironside used to say, there are only two religions in this world. Over 350 denominations in America, but only two religions. Dr. Ironside said, there's only two letters difference in these two religions. Two letters. One spells itself D-O. Do something. Believe and be circumcised. Believe and be baptized. Believe and keep the sacraments. Or believe and live a good Christian life. D-O. The other, said Dr. Einstein, spells itself with two more letters. D-O-N-E. Done. Jesus said it is finished. Done. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. You know how the average man in Memphis sings it if he sings it? Something in my hands I bring. To my good work I still will cling. And right at the beginning, the birth of the church, church settled this call. How are men saved? They're saved by faith in the Lord Jesus on the ground of the blood of Christ, by grace alone. And gentlemen, you need to get that straight when you're witnessing for Christ. A man has a bad habit. He's an unconverted man. He's got a bad habit. It's wrong. Don't get sidetracked and get him to quit that habit in order to get saved. He may have some peculiar view on the millennium. Don't try to settle him out to get him saved. There's only one issue, only one issue, and that is the person of Christ. 
You acknowledge you're a bankrupt sinner, that you're doomed and lost and headed for hell, and that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, and if you'll trust the Lord Jesus Christ, and him alone, he'll save you. That's the issue, see? And, and in witnessing, it's important, and in teaching and in preaching, that we don't add anything. And the tendency of the church for 1,900 years, it started in the second century. I read seminary, a course I took in the Apostolic Fathers. I had to read all the Greek fathers of the Apostolic Church, Barnabas and so on down the line. And I noticed within 30 or 40 years after the apostles died, the idea of baptismal regeneration began to grow. Augustine, all through the Middle Ages, men are saved by faith plus, plus, plus something. Do you know what Paul said? If anybody preaches any other gospel, let him be anathema, curse, curse, see. And they settle that. They settle third of practical, but this I suppose a very practical problem. Although we're not saved by conduct, yet in our conduct, now you listening? Their recommendation was, don't go out of the way to give an offense to other believers. You, have, you feel you can eat meat offered to idols? When you would Jew to have scruples about that, then as a strong believer, you accommodate yourself to a weak believer. But Paul was the eating of meat in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Today, it may be going to a certain place of amusement. Or it may be indulging in a certain habit. And you say, I can do it. Or looking at a certain television program. I can do it. Yeah, you may be able to do it. And you may not. But can your children do it? What effect does it have on other Christians? What Paul is saying is that I ought to submit my liberty as a Christian to the spiritual welfare of other believers. And that's the point they made. You avoid giving offense to Jewish believers. It was a great conference. May I suggest you go home and read it, study it once again. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee for this time together. Thank thee for this great truth that always needs affirmation in every generation. The human heart is addicted to lifting itself to heaven by its own bootstraps. We're all addicted to saving ourselves. If there's anything that we hate naturally is that we are bankrupt sinners. We have nothing to bring to God. We can't be saved by works or religious rites or by good deeds. Paul said, if I yet preach circumcision, then is the offense of the cross seen. And the offense of the cross is simply that a man comes bankrupt with empty hands that all his righteousness are filthy rags. Help us, Lord, to learn this truth, to seal it upon our hearts. We all believe it. Help us to learn it. Learn it so well that when we witness, when we teach Sunday school class, we don't get the gospel confused and tell people that they're saved by trusting Jesus and doing something else, that they are saved by trusting Christ alone. And he alone can save them. And he alone can bring them to heaven. Then once they are Christians, then there are certain obligations that rest upon them. Help us to get that truth clear and straight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.